is Arif Katra, and I'm the host of Voices Worth Listening To. This is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about diversity, stories that I hope will make you think and reflect on how we experience each other's differences. My goal is to encourage change in our individual perspectives and in the ways in which we live and work together. Today's podcast is the second part of a two-part series exploring some of the challenges women face related to diversity, inclusion, and equity. Over the course of my career, I've heard many passing comments, as well as full-throated opinions, about the challenges women face in the workplace. Many of them have been less than empathetic. I've heard so many people use examples of very successful women as proof that women don't actually face many challenges at work. But what I'm struck by are the assumptions so many people make about those challenges. So today, I take those assumptions and put them to one of the most successful women I know. Nicole Haggerty is a professor at the Richard Ivey School of Business in Canada. And unlike many professors, Nicole started her career in business and worked her way up the ranks to become a vice president at one of the largest technology companies in the world. Nicole is a global citizen. She's worked in Africa, India, and so many other interesting places around the globe. She has a big, connected, and vibrant family. And professionally, her credo has always been, work should be interesting. Interesting fact, Nicole also has more yard ornaments than any other human being I know. And with that, I introduce you to my very good friend, Dr. Nicole Haggerty. Nicole, welcome to Voices Worth Listening To, and I'm going to jump right in to my first question. You know, Nicole, many people believe that women like you are proof that there aren't as many challenges facing women in the workplace as people assume. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, it makes me laugh to think about women like me. I wonder what that actually means. Uh, Is it the gray hair? (laughs) Is it the age? Um, I think probably so. Um, But here's what I would say. I think that looking at where I am now and assuming that my current success um, is says anything about the challenges that I faced along the way, um, just ignore so many things about how that journey uh, can be full of challenges, even as you can arrive in a place where you, you are super happy and content and so grateful for the opportunities you have at work and in your personal life. So it ignores my first retail boss who slapped the bum of many of the young women who worked for him. And it ignores the subtle calls I heard in my undergraduate business class of quota whenever a woman spoke in a way that wasn't up to the standards of the predominantly male class that I was in. I think it ignores the uh, male client who regaled me with stories of his sex life uh, when I was in a professional meeting. It ignores the students who have commented in my student feedback surveys that I'm mean if I'm not super nice to them or nice enough to them. 
in the classroom setting. Um, it ignores the postpartum struggles I had after I had my son um, and the anxieties I had that were just out of control while I was on my tenure clock. And it ignores the colleagues who just within the last year said to me that there was no need to get emotional when I was speaking as passionately as one of my male colleagues about a contentious issue. So you can't ever take for granted the, the journey that a woman has been on when you look at say her landing point or the current point in time that she is on that journey. Wow. You know, Nicole, your answer made me realize something of which I'm quite guilty. I often look at someone's landing point and forget the journey. And that's what this is to me. It's this, this idea that, you know, you can look at somebody on the outside and see them at a moment in time, a moment in their journey and think, oh, that's perfect. That's what I want. I want that right. person, that job, that house, that confidence, that, you know, that self-assurance. Uh, I have no idea how that all, how that got earned <laughs> along the way, right? The pain that was, was uh, born to get to that stage. So with that, Nicole, um, let me ask you, do you feel young professional women have it easier today than in the past when it comes to be hired and promoted? You know, I wish I could say yes. I wish I could say yes to that, that the trials and tribulations that women who have gone before has actually led to an easier path for younger women. But I actually don't think so. I don't think it's easier. I think it's different, perhaps, than it was. But, you know, even as I say that I think it's different, I listened to your last podcast of the young woman in the investment banking world and think, uh, wow, that's not different at all. There's nothing different um, that she experienced. Um, but what I do think, across, it, maybe outside of that particular industry, um, is that there are ways in which the current world is maybe more mindful more aware that there are, and more accepting that there are issues, systemic issues with how women are being viewed and treated, with how they're being recognized and rewarded, with how they're assessed. And that um, there's a greater possibility for allyship um, in organizations maybe, that maybe there's a bit more uh, attention to how to mentor and develop women. And so there's opportunities for that. But until the system changes, until, you know, those the big systemic issues change around how women are, the opportunities for education, how they're, and the pathways that they take through that educational system about how the, edu- the sort of career opportunities that they have, what, what, what they can be seen to be doing, how they get seen to be um, earning their way and succeeding right? The, the way that maybe gender plays out and how women are seen until we have a way of embracing that uh, women have to bear the brunt of bearing children and therefore their career paths are impacted by that in ways that, um, uh, that they personally uh, pay a toll for professionally. You know, I don't think the systems have changed. So what I would say to young women today is, you know, you, there are different levers that you're going to have access to perhaps. But those the systems haven't changed enough for me to conclude that w- young women have it easier. Some people would disagree with that particular view. They might say that by and large, we live in a merit-based society. And merit doesn't always mean equity. 
So what do you say to someone who asserts that merit should be the guiding principle when it comes to hiring and promoting? And if you believe in merit, then you have to accept that men and women in leadership may not have equal representation or equal say. So I, I wish that merit was this universal concept uh, that was unblemished by inequity and exclusion. But unfortunately, we operate in a world of systems, systems that are a product of history and a product of people who have um, held power in those systems to both create them and sustain them. And for me, merit is part of the, you know, the systems of uh, social, social systems, cultural systems, economic systems, technological systems. Merit, merit plays out as a system in, in its own right. So who decides what merit is? Uh, when was it decided? How is it measured? When is merit questioned? How is it questioned? Um, in business, which is male-dominated domin in, in leadership roles, and certainly in academia, which is longstandingly dominated by um, men in, in leadership roles, we merit is a system that was created, defined, and is, gate uh, is gatekeeped by um, people in power. And... So when I look at uh, you know uh, inequ how inequity plays out in in many ways, that longstanding inequity begets inequity, and that merit is, you know the merit that was determined around uh, let's say my current career in academia around say research and research productivity and research contribution you know it's a very interesting system uh, that um, in many ways portrays the kind of bias that women experience so. You know, we can have two academics who have similar publication patterns, multi-authored publication patterns. Um, and somehow when a woman is the lead author on a you know, multi-authored publication, the question of what she contributed to it comes up more rigorously than when a man is in a multi-authored paper and his name is on, on front. And I've heard this play out in two ways. I, I talked with, a, just to give you a quick example, a woman who's a full professor who was telling me about her path to tenure and telling me that although she was married to a man um, who was a, a, a very strong scholar in an allied field, not quite in her field, but they had very similar interests, the advice she got was do not co-author with him and don't publish with him because even if it was your idea, even if it was, you know, you, you did the research, people will always assume that he was the one that, that did the research. And so here we have a merit-based system. Publications are publications, but that's not how they don't get, they don't get evaluated in that sort of even way, um, untouched by the sort of assumptions that we make. Uh, about how a woman's contribution versus a man's contribution on those research fronts. This is a small example. You work at an institution that has had two female deans in the last 10 years. Is that enough in terms of helping to turn an institution around? Mm -hmm. I love this question because very often the solution that people propose is, well, just put more women in place, right? More women will solve the problem. But when you operate within a system, everybody operates within that system. And so look at academia. 
when you, when more women are in the system, um, yeah, you have a higher chance that there will be more women who survive the system and pass into the next level, let's say, say stage of accomplishment. Then you get this thing called survivor bias, uh, where it becomes very hard to create critique, right? And take down a merit-based system that let's say I personally, because this is true, I personally have succeeded in, even though it, um, even though it maintains systems that are inequitable because I survived it. And so if I can survive it, other people, right, should be able to be successful in it. And it, that, that sort of inequity begets inequity, right? Just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I behave differently in the system. I'm in the system, right? And that's one of the hardest things about, um, about really appreciating how we're inframed in the systems that we are and how difficult it is to make change is because this very simple idea, well, we'll just add women. I mean, I've been asked to do things just because I'm a woman. We need a woman for this brochure. We need a woman to be in the classroom to represent uh, as if that's going to make a change. That doesn't make a change. So, Nicole, one of the realities of systemic discrimination is that it creates power differentials between those that are being discriminated against and those that might be perpetrating the vestiges of the system. But you're a professor. You hold a great deal of power relative to your students. You're also surrounded by highly educated colleagues. Business schools have a reputation that their professors are fiscally conservative, but socially liberal. So clearly, that would mean that you don't suffer significant gender discrimination issues at work, given the power position that you're in and the people that you're with. Is that accurate? You know, I, again, one of those, I wish that were true. Um, but let me tell you how it plays out. And in some ways, it's it's quite subtle. It can be hard to see. Um, but when you start appreciating the system that we all operate in, and that without intention, our systems sort of permit us to ask questions in particular ways, permit us to behave in particular ways, and others to behave, behave towards us in particular ways. Um, you know, they're one of the easiest examples and most interesting that I've, I've come across in the last uh, 15 years of teaching has to do with student feedback surveys. So in the academic environment, student feedback surveys are very important. And yet we know that they're biased against women and visible minorities. They'll score lower than men. And one of the most interesting stories or research papers I read was when you take a man and a woman in a virtual teaching environment and the man teaches and the only thing you change, you give him two classes and in one, he, he has a male name and in another, he has a female name. And you take a woman and you put her into two virtual classes. And in one, she has her, a female name and one, she has a male name. And then you look at student feedback. You will see that the man, the man in this teaching environment, whether he was actually underneath that name, a man or a woman, he will score higher than the female will on student feedback surveys. Um, and that, that feedback survey plays into things like um, performance evaluation and promotion and tenure, right? We know that there is a gender bias there that plays out. Um, in terms of maternity leave, right? We believe that maternity leave is this very important um, right that people have. Yeah, maternity leave um, and family leave are so important, but it plays out quite differently for men and for women. When a, when a female faculty member leaves 
on maternity leave, she is experiencing all kinds of physical and mental changes as a consequence of what her body has just gone through. And the, the time that she takes off uh, is, you know, people will always say, oh, well, she had extra year to do her research. Well, uh, having been through it, I can honestly say, I don't know what happened in that year, but uh, <laughs> what I remember did not have a lot to do with research. It had a lot to do with coping with postpartum anxiety and, and other things. And yet when men take paternity leave and nothing, this is not a, a slam on men. It's simply the way the system works. Male colleagues can take a paternity leave and their body has not transitioned through that. Yes, their family dynamic has changed. But what I've often seen is a young male colleague coming into the school to have peace and quiet so that they can get their research done, right? And that time off actually is productive time for some members uh, who, who have uh, family leave and is not productive time for others. And yet we treat that kind of leave as exactly the same when it comes to uh, advancing um, advancing people's uh, records for promotion and tenure. So I, I wish that gender discrimination didn't play out. I don't think it plays out in some, sometimes unquestionably there is an in, intentionality to it, but very often these are back to the, the question we talked earlier about in terms of merit. Um, these are structures that are in play that we all operate within and they reproduce the kind of, um, inequity that stems from gender bias, uh, from long-standing decisions about how we think about the workplace, how we think about research in, in an academic environment, how we think about research and other ways of, of uh, looking at performance. You know, the difference in paternity and maternity leave are human differences. And growingly, in society, we seem to be forgetting the humanity associated with the way we live with one another. In my own experiences with discrimination and bias, humanity is often missing. How we interact with others is something we learn at a very young age. I know for you, your mom passed away when you were very young. And you and all your sisters, how many are there? Uh, there are... Five sisters. Five sisters. Um, and you were raised by a very caring single dad until he remarried. I always, I've never asked you this, but I've always wondered how did that affect how you and your sisters see your role in society? You know, the trauma of losing your mother when you're nine years old and there are five other sisters in your household, it's it's uh, indescribable of, you know, sort of what you go through. Yet at the time, I, I, I've, I've learned more about what that meant to me, you know, at the time, now that I'm older than I could possibly see, even when I was in my 20s and 30s. But my father is an amazing, amazing man. And he had his own journey across the world from his father, who was um, uh, Goen. He was born in Kenya. He was educated in England. His first job in Canada was in a uh, construction camp on the Trans-Canada Highway in the middle of winter. Um, an amazing man. And here's, you know, it's interesting because I always laugh and say he was super traditional. He's a traditional man. 
right? He wanted us to get married, but he also wanted us to get an education. He never stinted on uh, how he would treat us, what he expected of us in terms of our um, critical thinking and what we thought of the world. And um, so he had this interesting, for, for me, when I look back, I always thought, oh, it's so interesting that this traditional man would raise these very independent women because we all became super independent, super, um, I would say, social justice warriors in a way, in our own way, um, with how we viewed the world and uh, uh, feminists in, in terms of our belief in women's rights. And I think the way I make sense of it now is, you know, he, um, coming from a, that South Asian background and sort of a traditional background and a culture that I think is very, very family oriented. And um, in, in the work I've done in Africa, I've come across this culture of Ubuntu this notion that I, I am because we are this sort of very, very collective mindset. I think that our role in society is absolutely manifested by this man. And then ultimately my second mother in raising children who saw their role as something that was on the one hand, very, um, you know, strong and stand up for yourself, but also very connected very connected to ourselves and within our family, but also to each other in our friends and our professional life. And I think that, you know, that's the, the, if I look across my family and all my siblings, that's what I see is this connectedness and this um, uh, deep caring that he, um, you know, that he set in motion, like ripples in a pond, he set that in motion. And, uh, and here we all are, my sisters and my sister's children, and now their children's children, um, seeing the world this way. I love that idea of Ubuntu. I am because we are. Mm-hmm. You have a son. I do. And I know, like most mothers and most parents, who he'll be. Not only what job he'll have, but who he'll be is something that so many of my friends with children worry a lot about, especially as their kids get older. And I don't know if we today, surprisingly, I guess, or not, um, live in a society in Canada where, especially in organizations, leaders espouse this idea that I am because we are. That crucial sense of identity, I think, is lost in a lot of leaders. I'm sure that given your son's own ancestry, his upbringing and the women and men that are in his life, um, he's going to naturally want to espouse to be a leader. And I think that's, that's just, that's going to happen, I think. So what advice do you give him? Here's what I worry about though. Will he be an ally? It's not that we, you know, I think in meeting the young people I've met over the last number of years in my teaching I think that there's lots of students who understand inequity and exclusion and who are really starting to see that they have a responsibility to, to see and change systems, right? But it's action that matters. And I reflect a lot on what you talked about in your last podcast about what am I doing? I think about it for myself. I don't think I've always done a very good job of acting when I've seen issues. What I really hope for my son is that before he he leaves my in sphere of influence too much, too much longer from now 
the advice I have for him is act, find out how you can act, not just nod and, and be empathetic, but actually stand up, you know, stand up, get in front of, um, and, and make sure that when people, when you see inequity, when you see exclusion happening, um, that you stand up for people, right? What is allyship? Uh, I, I hope that I raise a child, um, especially a, a white male child into this world, that he is well-armed with what to do when he sees uh, these, when he sees whether they're his friends or his coworkers or his colleagues, um, wherever he sees it, in the grocery store, on the street, <laughs> at a hockey game, um, that he, he stands up. You know, Nicole, I want to thank you for two things. One, for participating in this uh, podcast. But secondly, I want to thank you for the very theme that you ended our questions on, and that is allyship. I've worked in lots of organizational contexts, for-profit, non-profit, academia. I've worked around the world. And I don't think I've ever encountered an individual who commits themselves to allyship. And I've experienced it firsthand as much as you. So I want to thank you for that. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you. I hope you'll join me again in a few weeks by subscribing to the podcast. And I especially hope that today, the time spent listening to this podcast made you feel that this was a voice worth listening to. If you would like more information about my work in diversity and strategy, please visit my website at www.strat-ology.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y dot com. The music in this podcast is from the Toronto Tabla Ensemble. To find out more, visit torontotabla.com. That's the word Toronto and the word tabla, T-A-B-L-A dot com. Thank you.